Hello, this is Peggy Joyce Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. Anyone here ever felt used? Anybody ever felt used? Okay. Do you remember what was said or do you remember what was done that aroused those emotions that made you feel used? I'm not trying to bring up painful memories. That's not my purpose. But I do want you to recall the pain that you felt from having felt used because I'm wanting us to realize how other people feel when they feel used. Now, I want us to close some doors today. We're going to be looking at manipulation. Now, no one wants to think of himself as a manipulator. In fact, if I stood up here and said, I want to see a show of hands of everyone who uses manipulative means to get what you want. I bet I wouldn't have one person hold up their hand. <laughs> you know, every one of us would say, no, I wouldn't do that. But in subtle ways, very few people escape using manipulation altogether. Now, even if you're sitting there thinking, well, that's not me, I'm not a manipulator, at least I want you to keep an open mind because if we understand the full ramification of what all manipulation involves, hopefully it's going to help us to be able to avoid some of the subtle pitfalls. And I'm gonna tell you what, not all manipulation is obvious. Some manipulation is very subtle and it can slip in when we don't realize it. Now we're gonna be looking at manipulation from two angles. We're gonna look at it from the angle of being manipulated and we're also going to look at it from the angle of being the manipulator. Now this is not intended to be some deep psychological study because I'm not going into why a person manipulates. My objective is just to point out some areas when we do it and where the manipulation occurs. I found out that when something is exposed, then we deal with it. You know, most of the time, Christians will deal with something if they really see it in their lives. Okay, now let me give you the definition in just simple, simple terms. Any time that someone uses his influence in an unfair way to try to force another person to do something outside of their will, then that's manipulation. Just as simple as that. In other words, to unfairly coerce another person into doing what that person doesn't want to do. Now, do you know what the bottom line of manipulation is? Okay, bottom line. In whatever area a person is using manipulation, in that area, that person is not seeing God as their source. That's what it amounts to. Now, I've known people who trusted God in so many areas, and yet they might have one little area over here where maybe they're in fear or for some reason they manipulate to get what they want. And it might be just a little subtle area. Now, it always helps me to realize that if I have to resort to manipulation, then I'm not trusting God. And when I think about that, it makes me not want to be a manipulator. It helps me to check myself. Because manipulation never happens where there's absolute trust in God. And you can mark that down as an absolute. Manipulation will never happen where there is total, absolute trust in God. Now, God may use us to change our world. He will use us to change our world, but he's not going to use us to manipulate to change it. And there is a difference because no one has the right to control another person. Neither should we allow someone else to control us. Now, the Bible tells us there's one thing that's supposed to control us. And what is that? The love of Christ. We're to be controlled by the love of Christ. Now, don't confuse this with the need to cooperate. You know, I've seen people who wouldn't cooperate or they wouldn't work with other people because they were so afraid that they were going to be controlled. 
Now that's as wrong on the other extreme. God sent his Holy Spirit not to drive us. He didn't send his Holy Spirit to manipulate us. He didn't send his Holy Spirit to force us into anything. But he sent his Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us into all truth. And that's why we don't change from our wrongdoing many times because what we're doing, we're waiting for God to just kind of slap us down and manipulate us into going his way. And the reason we expect that is because we're so accustomed to the game playing in the world. And because he doesn't work that way, many times we mistakenly take that as approval. You know, God's not forcing us and so we just think, well, everything's okay. Many times we just kind of go on our merry way and we think, well, everything's fine. You know, God hasn't been pushing me in any direction. But he doesn't push us. He leads us and guides us in a very gentle way by truth. Now, there's times when I wish that God would manipulate me. (laughs) I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I would just love for God to just pick me up and force me into his right pathways every time. But he doesn't work that way. And neither does he excuse our actions when we do. Now, this week and next, I'm going to give you eight of the more common areas of manipulation. But now before we get into these examples of manipulation and talk about how to overcome manipulation, I want to give you three possible misunderstandings because I don't want to clear up one area and then cause some problems someplace else. So I'm going to cover these three first. The first misunderstanding is mainly to husbands and wives. There may be something that you are legitimately supposed to be doing for your mate that you're not doing. And you need to just be honest with yourself. Now, I could give you a long list off the top of my head, but maybe you're not spending enough time with your mate. You know, maybe you're not doing your share of the work. Maybe you're not accepting your share of the responsibility, or maybe you're not helping with the discipline of the children. You know, there could be on and on. But there are some legitimate areas many times where a mate will fall short. And the frustration of that can cause a mate many times to fall into manipulation to try to get what they need. If it's our shortcoming that's opened the door to their manipulation, then we're going to share in the responsibility for the sin. Now, I'm not saying that that excuses the manipulation. It doesn't. But when we open the door and we help entice someone else toward a weakness, then we are going to share in the guilt. Okay, the second caution is to a strong-willed person. Now, a lot of strong-willed people have a fear of being manipulated. I found out that many strong-willed people, they just have this thing that they don't want to be controlled by someone else. And often, that fear of being controlled or fear of being manipulated causes them to build walls to guard themselves against being manipulated. And sometimes they do it to such an extent that they even balk at suggestions. And that fear many times will cause them not to even be cooperative. And they're not even willing to hear honest truth from someone. Now, if you're a a really strong-willed person, the chances are high that there is a fear that someone's going to take advantage of you. Now, you don't want that fear because what it does, it leads to stubbornness and it also leads to an unwillingness to work with other people. Okay, the caution number three is to parents. Now, the fear of being manipulative or the fear of controlling another person now can keep a parent from exercising the authority that God has given to him and to both mates in rearing their children. Now, God's given us rules by which we're to live. We have the Ten Commandments. We have the different things that God has shown us. And he expects us as parents now to have certain rules by which we govern our families. And that's a part of our responsibility to our children and also to our grandchildren. 
The disciplining of our children is a God-given responsibility. It's not a suggestion. No, it's a requirement. As long as children are living in our home, then there are some household rules that have to be consistently enforced. God expects that of us. And that's a necessary part of a child's upbringing so that when they reach adulthood, they'll be responsible adults. And that's not manipulation. That's not control when you do that. Now, if your child's living at home, don't allow them to tell you what they're going to do. See, it's not manipulation to enforce the household rules. In fact, if you have grown children living in the home, it's fine to even give them an ultimatum, you know, to be able to say, I love you and I want you here, but you're going to live peacefully by the rules of the household in action as well as attitude, or you can move out and it'll be without my financial support. Now, be sure that your rules are not overbearing. You know, you may need to seek some wisdom from someone that can help you in that area because you don't want to provoke your children to anger. But nothing destroys a child more quickly than having no consistently enforced guidelines to go by. It's very, very important because if they're allowed to be rebellious growing up, then they're going to have a really hard time and they'll be rebellious in their walk with God. And you don't want that. You can take that out of their lives before they get there. But many times a person will hear a teaching on manipulation and they all of a sudden start thinking, oh, I'm being manipulative when I make my children mind. And I don't want that to be misunderstood. So with these three areas now of possible misconception, I want us to look now tonight at three areas of common manipulation. Now, the first one that we're going to look at is when one plays on someone's emotions or on someone's insecurity in an attempt now to get that person to do what they want them to do. Now, that's manipulation. That's unfair. For example, if you don't do what I desire you to do, and if I hold something back that you need emotionally, you know, let's say I hold back my affection or I hold back my love or my help in an attempt to force you to do something, then that's manipulation. Okay, are you following what I'm saying? Now, a really easy example to follow is the guy who tells the girl that he's dating, if you don't go to bed with me, you really don't love me. And if you don't love me, there's no need for us to date any longer, so we might as well break up. Well, that's a play on her insecurity to hold back his willingness to date her or to at least make her think that he's holding back his willingness to date her in an attempt to force her now or manipulate her to do what he wants her to do. Now, that's not a new tactic. I want you to look at Judges 16, verse 15. Now, you remember the story of Samson and Delilah. And we think of Samson as being strong because in the physical he was. But because he was over in enemy territory now, he was an open target to the enemy. Now, Delilah wanted to know the secret of Samson's strength. So we find in Judges that she begins to play on his emotions, and she begins to manipulate, and she begins to deceive Samson until she gets his secret. Now, manipulation finally becomes an open door to deception. It's one of the reasons we want to stop manipulation, because the next step gets us into deception. Okay, in verse 15 then, we find that Delilah is speaking to Samson, and she said, how can you say you love me when your heart's not with me? You've deceived me these three times and you've not told me where your great strength is. Okay, I mean, she's really pouring it on. She's saying, you know, talk is cheap. You tell me that you love me, but you really don't love me. If you loved me, you would tell me your secret. 
And I'm sure she probably shed some tears and, and she coerced him with guilt until he finally gave in. And you know the rest of that story. But Satan doesn't have any new tactics. He just whitewashes the old ones and he uses them over and over and over because they work. Now, I'm about six years older than my sister. And before I'm married, I can remember saying to her, you know, I have so much homework tonight. I'm never going to get to bed. You know, it's my turn to do the dishes and I'm never going to make it to bed. And I didn't come right out and ask her because I knew that if I talked long enough about my homework, she would finally have her sympathy button touched and she'd finally reluctantly do the dishes for me. And, you know, I felt justified. I really didn't think I'd done anything wrong because I did have a lot of homework. That was the truth. But I could have had those dishes done during the time that I spent mouthing about it, you know. Now, instead, I manipulated my way out of the dishes. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to ask someone for help. It's not wrong to even explain your circumstances. But it needs to be open and it needs to be forthright and it needs to be honest. See, you know, it'd be fine if there had been a legitimate need. It would have been fine for me to have said, I have a test tomorrow. Would you trade off with me and do the dishes for me tonight? There would have been nothing wrong with that. And that would have been forthright and that would have been honest. But it's not forthright and honest when we coerce with sympathy games or with guilt. If we play on somebody's emotions, it can be in sympathy, it can be guilt, it can be in their insecurity, it can be fear. But if we do that in an attempt to coerce them to do something that they don't want to do, then that's wrong. Now, you know times when you've been pushed into doing something that you really didn't think you were supposed to do. Now, I'm not talking about sin, but I'm talking about something that you really didn't particularly think that God was telling you to do, and you felt manipulated into doing it because someone played on your emotions. How did it make you feel? Remember how it made you feel? You felt used, didn't you? You felt like you'd been used. And then you become angry at yourself, and you become angry at the other person. I've never seen the time where manipulation brought good fruit. Now, you can look it up later, but in John 6, verse 66, Jesus is our example. And he was teaching a doctrine that his disciples didn't understand. He was saying, you have to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood in order for you to have life in you. And because they didn't understand, the Bible says they ceased to follow him. Some of the translations say they withdrew and they followed him no more. Well, we notice when we read that, that it was a concern to the Lord because he turned to the other 12 disciples and he said, are you going to leave me too? Are you going to quit following me too? So he was concerned about the ones that had left. We know that. But he neither manipulated to keep them, nor did he succumb to the manipulation that they were trying to put on him. In other words, you know, he didn't let them manipulate him into changing what he was teaching. He didn't run after them. He didn't try to use manipulative means to get them to stay. And we find that he didn't allow anything to change what he was doing, what he knew he was called to do. Now, some people will use symptoms of sickness to play on somebody's emotions. I've seen children, I've seen husbands, I've seen wives who have faked stomach aches and headaches and whatever in an attempt to get their way in a certain area or to get maybe some attention or some sympathy that they thought they needed. Now, if you've ever used those kinds of tactics, be very, very careful because if we continue, 
then you're not going to have to fake the symptoms long because Satan will finally oblige and those symptoms will be real. (laughs) Then you'll be telling the truth. You know, I knew one girl who said that she faked labor pains to the point that she'd go to the hospital because she wanted her husband's attention so badly. Now, she had several children, and on the last one, she ended up almost losing the baby because of faking these labor pains. And she said what was sad about it is that she still didn't get the attention that she wanted. It didn't bring what she was after anyway. Because manipulation never ultimately brings what we want. Now, I want you to turn to Luke 15, verse 25. This is the story of the prodigal son. And if you'll remember, he had gotten his share of the inheritance and he had squandered it all on unrighteous living. Now, finally, he gets so low that he comes back as a servant to his father's house. And the father's so happy to see him that he runs out and he puts a robe on his shoulders, he puts a ring on his finger, and he gives him this big party. Now, the older brother's out in the field and he has faithfully always been there for his father. But he gets close to the house and he hears all this music and dancing. And I'm sure that through the years as he worked faithfully, I'm sure there were many times that he would think about this younger brother who was out living it up. And he probably felt like a martyr at times. But in verse 25, the older brother was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summonsed one of the servants and he began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, well, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and he was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began entreating him. Now notice that he's having his pity party. He's angry. He's not about to go in the house. He's not about to partake of that party. But I want you to notice something else. He didn't keep it quiet. He didn't go back out in the field and have his pity party by himself. He made sure that his father knew about it because some way the father found out and the father comes out to entreat him. Now I can just hear the father. I can just hear him say, son, your brother's come home. We're having this wonderful party. We're celebrating his homecoming. Come in and let's enjoy the party. And in verse 29, he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a commandment of yours. And yet you have never given me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Now, I want you to notice how logical that sounds. You know, that almost sounds convincing. And many parents are swayed by that. Many, many parents are swayed by those logical-sounding, manipulative little phrases that are used. And he began to try to manipulate his father by trying to make his father feel guilty. He said, you've given me commandments and I have never failed to obey your commandments. I've never been in rebellion. And you know, that does sound good. And that might've hooked me. I might've started thinking, you know, that's right. This child has never disobeyed me. Then he goes on and he said, but you've never thrown a party for me. But when this son of yours, notice he didn't say when my brother comes home. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your wealth, you kill the fatted calf and you give him this wonderful party. Now, he's really working on a guilt trip on that dad. And if the father had allowed that older brother now to manipulate him by playing on his sympathy and making him feel guilty, it would have been the worst possible thing that he could ever have done for that child. Now, the father could have thought, you know, oh my goodness, that's right. 
He has never failed me even one time. And he could have thought, I really haven't. I've never given him a part. And he could have fallen all over himself saying, you know, I'm going to tell you what, next month I'm going to give you the party of a lifetime. I am going to do it right. But he didn't fall for that manipulation. And it's very, very important, especially with our children and our grandchildren, that we not fall for their manipulation. Because if we ever fall for it, then that makes it stronger in them. We need to do good things for them, but not when they're manipulating us into doing it. Now, self-pity has a way of sounding very illogical, especially to the person that's in the self-pity. And, you know, it can feel so justified. There's a pull there that tries to pull us into guilt if we're not aware of it, if we're not careful. But I want you to notice what this father did. He answered the manipulation by telling him the truth in love. And that's always the answer. And that's what defeats manipulation every single time is when we begin to speak the truth in love. And in verse 31, he said to him, my child, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. Now this father here is representing God and he's saying, son, you could have had a party anytime you wanted it. Everything you see around here belongs to you. Now, in a very loving way, what that father was saying was grow up and lay that selfishness down. You know, you're acting like a child. Grow up. Now, a little side note here is any time that we're living an under par life and we're blaming God and we're feeling all in self-pity and we're thinking, oh, God, you're not doing this and you're not doing that. We need to realize that the father is saying right here to us, everything I have is yours. It's just that many times we haven't taken advantage of what God's made available. But he's saying to us every day, everything I have is yours. Now, if the father had fallen for the manipulation, it would have pushed that older brother further and further into selfishness. You know, that father couldn't allow a guilt trip to keep him from the most important thing. And he knew that. He knew that he had to pull that older son out of his manipulation. He had to pull him out of that selfishness, you know, out of that jealousy, because he knew that it would ruin the older son. And so in verse 32, he said, we have to be merry and rejoice with this brother of yours. Notice he pulls it back, no longer this son of mine, but he pulls it back to say, we have to be merry and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and he's begun to live and he was lost, but now he's been found. We have to be merry. So this father now was pointing his older son to the real issue. He wasn't saying you can't have a party. He wasn't saying that. He was simply pointing the truth to him in love. Now, psychologists tell us that inducing guilt in another person is one of the most common forces that's used in manipulation. I thought that was interesting, that most of the time, manipulation will try to work on guilt. So that's a self-examination that we each could do for ourselves. Pretty often we could ask ourselves, do I try to make other people feel guilty to get what I want? Do I try to make my mate or my child or my parents or my friend, do I try to make them feel guilty? Do I work on their guilt, you know, what they haven't done to get what I want? Now this father represents God and he neither manipulated to get the younger son home or keep him from leaving home in the first place, neither did he allow now himself to be manipulated. He wasn't the manipulator and he didn't allow himself to be manipulated. Now there's going to be times when you're going to have to be strong enough to look past what's being said to you and be able to get past the emotional feelings that you're going through 
even though they might sound logical and feel logical, you're going to have to get past that and look at the truth and hear what God's saying to be able to have the right answer. Now, we're going to have to be willing to look at the truth and then be confident enough in who we are in Christ Jesus not to fall for the intimidation. Now, don't get manipulation now confused with someone coming to you with truth. You know, it's not wrong to try to change somebody's mind with the truth. That's not manipulation. When it's forthright and you go to somebody and you point something out in love and you give them truth, that's not manipulation. You're trying to show them truth from the Word of God. Just remember now, the, the telltale signs of manipulation is to play on another person's emotion to produce guilt, fear, insecurity, sympathy, or whatever to get what you want. That's the flashing neon sign. Okay, now here's another strange phenomenon about manipulation. If a person succumbs to the pressure that you put on them and they allow you to control them, you begin to lose respect for them. Happens every time. You know, the guy who pressures the girl into giving him sexual privileges will lose respect for that girl, even though maybe he's begged her to give in. He'll start losing respect for her. Now, it's a spiritual principle that comes out of the kingdom of darkness because control and manipulation kills respect on both ends. The person starts losing respect for the one that they've manipulated, but they also start losing respect for themselves. Okay, number two area of manipulation. When someone is made to feel insecure in their rightful place. Okay, now there are many people who will watch for insecurity in another person, and then they'll begin to create an internal pressure in that person by playing on their insecurity. Now, let me give you an example. Let's just say in the job site. It's a very common ploy for a manipulator in an attempt now to climb up the corporate ladder to watch for weaknesses in other key people in the organization and then very cunningly play on their insecurities and make them look bad in an attempt to make themselves look good or make themselves look more knowledgeable. I've seen that happen at parties. Now, I'm happy to say it's never happened at a church party, but when we were in business and we would go to a company party, it was a pretty common practice to see someone attempt to make someone else look foolish in order to make themselves look good. And that happens so many times in the world. Well, that's manipulation. I've watched so many situations where a child would manipulate a parent by playing on the parent's emotions in an attempt to get what they want. Now, that child's not necessarily knowing that the parent has an insecurity. But what it is, it's a spiritual force. And that spiritual force working through that child knew it. See, if the parent's insecure in his or her role, then there's a lot of little manipulative phrases that'll do the trick every single time. And boy, you've heard all of them, you know. All the kids are getting to go. I'm the only one that's being left out. Or you don't really love me. Or the threat, you know, I don't love you anymore. And single parents especially need to be aware of that one. Or you don't do as much for me as you do for my sister or my brother. You always buy them pretty clothes. You don't buy anything for me. Or you let him get by with murder and you're on to me all the time. You hear these little things all the time. Or you put too much pressure on me to go to church. I'm going to leave home if things don't change. And they start playing on the fear. You know, you'd be surprised how many children even threaten suicide as a means of manipulation. 
And these are all things that a secure parent can listen to and then handle it God's way. But if there's an insecurity in that parent, if there's a fear or an insecurity of some kind, well, then there's a tendency sometime to let that sway the parent. Now, parents, if a child demands something by throwing a fit or by crying or threatening or pouting, don't give in. That's not for your sake. Don't give in even once for their sake because anytime you give in to a child's manipulation, you're doing that child a grave injustice because you're letting them see that that works. And so they try it again and again. And every time it works, it becomes stronger in them. So when you don't allow it to happen, you're helping them to become a responsible adult. Now I'm gonna give you the classic line of a parent who gives in to manipulation or a grandparent who gives in to manipulation. Now this is the classic line. Are you ready for it? Okay, just this once. <laughs> Have you ever said that? Okay, what we're really saying when we say that, we're saying, okay, just this once, I'm gonna let you manipulate me. <laughs> That's what we're really saying. Now when we feed manipulation, it's gonna grow like an animal. And the goal of manipulation is destruction because it comes out of the kingdom of darkness. Now let me give you this illustration, it's true. I knew these parents and the parents had a toddler and he was allowed to sleep with them. He had been sleeping with them from the time that he was born. And they decided it was time that he sleep in his own bed. And so the first night they put him in his bed, he didn't like that one bit and he cried and he begged and he did everything and it didn't do any good. Well later in the evening he came in, now he had been potty trained for a good while, but later in the evening he came in and he announced that his bed was wet so he couldn't sleep in his bed, he was gonna have to sleep with them. Him. And they said as young as he was, he had figured out a way to try to manipulate them. Well, to his surprise, they didn't even change the bed. They folded up a big thick towel and left him there in the stench and said, no, you can sleep and we'll change your sheets in the morning. <laughs> so it didn't work, but it stopped that at the door. Now it's gonna help us not to fall for manipulation when we realize it's not coming from really from that person. Our fight's not against flesh and blood. Manipulation is a spirit out of the kingdom of darkness. And the goal of manipulation is always destruction, every single time. Okay, the number three, manipulation by nonverbal means. Now this is a subtle one. This is the one we need to listen to. It can be a, a tone of the voice, it can be an expression on the face. Have you ever been talking to someone and all of a sudden their expression changed or the tone of their voice changed and boy, you turned and you went the other direction, not because you wanted to, but because all of a sudden just a fear, emotion built up on the inside of you and you didn't want confrontation, so you turned and went another direction. Some people will use pouting or a silent treatment. You know, I had this one little boy tell me, my parents are mad at each other, my mama hasn't spoken to my daddy for a week. <laughs> <laughs> well, that silent treatment can sometimes be a means of manipulation to punish that other person emotionally. Now, there's going to be times when you won't say anything. You'll walk out of the room and not say anything just because you don't want to have an argument. And that's okay. That can be good. But that should never last overnight into the next day. You know, the, these things need to be taken care of before the sun goes down. But you've heard people say, well, I just have to walk on eggs around that person or I just don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to make them angry. If somebody has said that about you, then you might be thinking, well, that's their problem. I didn't ask them to walk on eggs. I didn't ask them to be nervous around me. But 
Let me say that if people are constantly thinking that they have to walk on eggs around you, if they're constantly thinking that they don't want to rock the boat around you or that they can't approach you or they're afraid they're going to upset you, then that might mean that we need to prayerfully check ourselves because that's a pretty good telltale sign that we possibly might be putting out some manipulative control without even realizing it. So if that's something that we're being accused of over and over, at least look at it. We need to prayerfully ask God because if a person feels that way about us and we start hearing different ones feeling that way about us, then that might be a manipulative message that we're using. One couple that I knew that had been married for years and years, the, the man still walks on eggshells all the time and he's just terrified because he is afraid that his wife will fall apart emotionally if he crosses her. The way he put it, he was afraid she'd go off her rocker again. Well, he was just meaning that she gets all upset emotionally. And I started watching the situation, and I thought, well, I know why he thinks that. Without her realizing it, what she was doing, she was putting out this nonverbal communication. She didn't say anything, but she was putting out this nonverbal communication that she was emotionally fragile, and that if he crossed her, if he got her upset, that it would cause her to fall apart emotionally. And she was putting that message out. And he didn't want to have to face that, so he just gave in to it. And so she was manipulating without even realizing that she was doing it. And husbands can do that too. It can be both ways. One young man that we knew who graduated from Howard Payne several years ago started dating this girl. They hadn't been dating long, but she had been sick practically all of her life. And in just a short time after they started dating, her entire attitude was communicating that because of the fact that she was sick, that if he left her, she would be physically and she would be emotionally just destitute. She wasn't saying these things, but you could read it all over. I mean, she was just constantly clinging to him. And, and if he even acted like he was going to date someone else, you could just see just horror all over her. And he knew he was being manipulated, but he didn't have an answer because he was afraid that if he did break up with her, that he would leave her just devastated. It was almost as though since he didn't have any answers for her well-being, that he just kind of accepted her problem as his responsibility. And later he did marry her. But before they married, his mother came into town. And she came over to my house and met with me, and she said, have you picked up manipulation that this girl is manipulating my son? And I said, well, she's not saying anything, but yes, there is a nonverbal manipulation that's going on. And she said, I thought so, and I could tell she was so worried about it, and I prayed with her, and she left. Well, finally, because she didn't have an answer for the girl either, she fell right into the same trap with her son, and they both just sort of took that girl on as their responsibility. And I thought, you know, what kind of marriage is that going to be down the road? And I really don't think the girl was that sick, but it had been such a subtle tool. She probably had fallen into that when she was young. It worked with her parents. And because they gave into it, it started becoming a stronghold. And then finally, she was doing it without even realizing that she was doing it. And as long as she was surrounded by people who enabled her to continue that manipulation, well, it just grew stronger and stronger. Now, so many people are totally unaware that they're using this nonverbal type of manipulation to get attention or to get whatever it is they happen to be wanting. 
So we have to be really careful never to allow anger or change of mood or frustration or irritation or whatever to become so prevalent that it affects other people that are around us, keeps them from approaching us, or causes them to have to feel like they're uptight every time they're around us. Because if we're doing that, if we're allowing those emotions to affect other people around us, then we are operating in manipulation. And that is wrong. God cannot bless that. Now, even if we're not doing it on purpose, you know, even if we're doing it subconsciously, if it's happening on a fairly regular basis, then something is being put out in the spiritual realm that's not godly. Now, most men, if they're going to use manipulative means, many times anger will be more prevalent. If they want to control the situation or manipulate the situation, many times they'll just blow up and wife or the children or maybe the coworkers, you know, kind of back off. And so they can manipulate the situation with anger. Women are more prone toward moodiness. You know, they'll, they'll just get in a bad mood and the husband doesn't want to have to contend with that. So he'll, you know, back off. So we just need to be careful of these things that the world uses because it's very prevalent in the world. Now, sometimes husbands and wives will hold back physical love, sexual privileges, in an attempt to get their way. Now, I'm not going to spend a long time on this one, but if that happens to be a problem, then 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5 addresses that area of manipulation. You know, there's so much game playing in marriages today, and every bit of the game playing spells manipulation. You know, Jack and I hadn't been married but probably a month or less when we had this argument one night, and we both grabbed our pillow and we were going to head for the couch. Well, we would have both ended up on the couch, which might have been okay. <laughs> that might have settled the argument, but anyway... When we saw that we'd both grabbed our pillow and we were going to take off, well, we got tickled. And so we sat down and we started talking about it and we both decided we didn't want that kind of manipulative game playing in our marriage because it's deadly. And so I thought, God, let us overplay our hand to let us see that. But game playing is one of the most deadly forms of manipulation that you can do in any relationship, but especially in a marriage. I put game playing probably at the top of the list of the nonverbal manipulation. But sometimes game playing's not so nonverbal. Sometimes it can become a little verbal. Okay, now just a notation here. The people who are convinced that manipulation is not an area of weakness in their lives, where they're convinced that they never use manipulative means, they need to at least look at this number three area of controlling with the nonverbal manipulation. Because this is so subtle that a lot of people fall into it without ever realizing that they've been there. It's just kind of an unspoken vibe that's put out in the spiritual realm. And it's given and it's received almost subconsciously. And that's why a lot of people can be being manipulated or they can be manipulative and absolutely never know it. Okay, now we're going to take up here next week and we're going to look at the last five areas of manipulation. And when we finish this two-part series on manipulation, I think you're going to find that it can bring a lot of purification because I think we'll probably find at least one of the eight where we've been at least tempted. If we haven't gone there, we've been tempted. Father, thank you that you have examples in the Word of God. You have answers in the Word of God for every single thing that we can be tempted to do. 
And Father, I know that you're wanting us to come to a place where we don't use unfair means, where we don't do things in the world's way, in an ungodly way. But Father, you're wanting us to give forth the truth in love and be forthright and do all of that in love. Father, I thank you that we want to become more and more like Jesus. So Father, I thank you that everything that we hear, everything that we read, everything that you've shown us in the Word, Father, I thank you that you're going to help us to appropriate it in our life and appropriate it in our life until, Father, we become in the image of Jesus Christ. That's the desire of our heart. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.